Hi, this is James Joke, most web comics reviews and interviews. This morning we're sitting with John Chalmers and Sandra Mars of Metafox. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hi, everybody. I'm John. And I'm Sandra, and we both uh, work under the name Metafrog, and it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks very much for letting us get on your show. No problem. Uh, tell me a little bit about Metafrog. Okay, so it started um, over 20 years ago, in fact, uh, and I moved from France to uh, Britain, to Scotland, and met John, and uh, we decided that we wanted to, to work together. I was... Um, drawing and painting and you wanted to write so we decided that it would be a, a good way for us to both combine our interests and our passion This was back in 1994 so it's quite a long time ago um, Over the years we've worked together making comics and graphic novels and this year would have seen us come to TCAF to launch our latest book which is a graphic novel adaptation of the fairy tale Bluebeard but we're probably better known or best known for our Louis series of books, which started in the year 2000 and continued until about 20, 2011. 2011. Um, most years we used to come over to America, either to San Diego Comic Con or to one of the, the shows like Small Press Expo and talk to people about our work. So we miss the traveling side of things this year. Oh, definitely. I'm hearing a lot of people are missing the traveling side. So unprecedented, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, how much is that? Uh, how much is that going into your marketing? I mean, a lot of people tend to do a lot of marketing at conventions. How's that affecting you? I think uh, conventions are just like uh, one side of 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 our work or of anybody's work. In fact, it's really in terms of marketing, it's combining attending conventions but also uh, doing like social media and for us we do also a lot of school visits and library visits so it's um, I guess one side of, of our work is, is affected. We walked um, through every stall, we went to every stall at San Diego Comic Con in 1996 or eight, 1998 and we gave everybody a flyer and talked to them. A lot of people probably would have been not very interested in our independent comic in those days. But when we did the launch of Louis Red Letter Day in America, it was very, very popular. And we missed that. We missed the buzz. But for us, marketing begins locally. We might even put flyers around the local libraries and cultural places, you know, like theatres, cinemas, bookshops, anywhere that we can see that there's potentially an audience because we wanted to try and get more people interested in comics right from the very start. Going to shows taking a table at shows has been a big part of it for us but it was more about communication and I think a lot of that had already shifted online which is quite disturbing, it's quite worrying to see the world shift into a sort of virtual world because it's important to look people in the eye and important to see people I think. It's a great new way to connect with, with people though as well Well this is amazing, you're, you're in California right? Yeah. We can talk, we're in Scotland um, Sandra came over to Scotland from France in 1994 we went to London to UK CAC in 1996 with our first comic, Strange Weather, lately. And we spoke to people there. So that was our first convention ever? First convention ever. And there was only really one annual convention in Britain. Now there's more or less one a week. And some of them are closer to like memorabilia shows or shows where people dress up. It's like a costume, cosplay or a costume thing. There's right. big parts to it. It's, it's, it's mushroomed, if you like. It's exploded. Convention yeah. seems really changed, I think. Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just sort of fun because I've just realized you guys are European, which means, uh, from my understanding, is the convention scene is entirely different than it is in America. It's. I think they're a little bit smaller than in America, I think. Yeah. Also, my understanding is a little less frequent. I think, like, uh, you, England, for example, just doesn't have as many convention on a yearly basis as say even California or New York does yeah so. Angoulême is the biggest European convention for comics and there's a quarter of a million people go to that, it's a festival in France just above Bordeaux, we went there for at least a dozen years talked to people I think the thing with going to shows, going to festivals, conventions, whether it's in America or Europe, is that you make good friends, you make friends with people 
especially in the 90s, there was a real sense of community in comics. We've kept in touch with a lot of the comic creators and comic shop owners that we met when we went to SPX or went to Mocha in New York. And you connect with these people, so you care about them. And that's a little bit different from marketing. I think it's more, for us, it was always more about communicating. Right. And it doesn't help you guys would have the reason I bring that up um, uh, besides obviously this, the population difference is that in America we were dealing with and when you guys first started in 1994 we were still dealing with the speculators cri- uh, crisis okay. buy so, one buy two slab one read one yeah, yeah, yeah more of a get one get all the alternate covers all the different various different foil covers and of course yeah it was all. Make sure you get all 27 number one issues as our, we we put our series out every year, just so we can have more number one issues. But yeah, <laughs> I think if people don't read the things they buy, it's a bad situation. We are always happier when people are buying comics to read them, and I think the shows that we liked going to the most were probably SPX, which was in uh, Bethesda initially. And there you would see people from the local area who were just culturally curious. They would come to the shows. Okay. Was that your bird? Yeah. We have to keep not. I. It's just like a kid. Every once in a while, I shall go quiet, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, what is she doing? Again, <laughs> it's just a pet thing. Um. Yeah. Okay. So let's go over your comics real quick. Let's start off with, well, obviously, you know, what are some of your earlier comics? Um, so our very first comic was called Strange Weather Lately, and it's something that we serialized as a bi-monthly comics at first. Uh, we did over uh, just about 10 issues, I think, and then we brought them out as graphic novels. And after that, as John said... After that, we wanted to work on a full-color book, um, and we'd self-published Strange Weather Lately, so the idea of making a full-colour book was quite frightening, and it took a little while for us to settle on the story. But we brought out a full-colour graphic novel, which was suitable for children of all ages, called Louis Red Letter Day. We brought that out in the year 2000. The next year we made a book called Louis Lying to Clive, and then there was the World Trade Centre. There was a big change in the world at that point, and the show we intended to go to, it was cancelled, but we'd already travelled. So we were given a travel grant by Big Planet Comics, which was really gracious and really supportive of them. Big Planet Comics became kind of our friends. You know, um, as a comic shop, we could be a friend. Um, and we stayed in touch with a lot of the people that come to go to the show that was cancelled. So that was great. But it also gave us ideas for short stories. And the next year we did a lot of short stories for different publishers like Alternative Press, Dark Horse Comics and... We also made another self-published book called Louis the Clown's Last Words. And by that point, we'd started to reach too high a level to keep making books ourselves and self-publishing them. It was an awful a lot of work. And as much as we loved doing it, we realised that we really needed help to reach more people. So we somehow ended up working almost by accident with a record label because we made a comic. We decided it would work well with music. So we asked a man in Berlin whose song we really liked if he'd make one of his songs suit the world of our Louis books. And we made a project where there was uh, room for Sondra to make a little animation. And we brought out Louis Dreams Never Die. How's your wee bird doing? She's fine. I'm just... You have to understand, I'm a comic book geek. And so basically, you guys basically actually working with a record company in order to produce a comic means you actually Mm -hmm. did something that Marvel Comics had major problems doing. Oh, it's not an easy thing to do. It was quite an unusual thing to do at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Louis's got a wee bird friend as well called FC, or Formulate Companion. And bringing it out with a record label meant the character reached an awful lot more readers. It was a weird thing to do. I can show you it, if you you bear with it. Okay. Right there. Nice. Aye, so it was a, a record. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so. so there was like one one edition with uh, blue vinyl and another one with a CD, and we also made uh, an animation um, that was that went with the CD, and that was online. It's still online, in fact, on YouTube. Uh, Louis Dreams Never Die. So, so that was a fun project. And Excellent. after that, what did we do after that? Um, after that, we reached a much bigger audience because people who wouldn't normally read comics started to read comics. And we kept on working on a new Louis book called Louis Night Salad, which actually brought us to a much wider literary audience. It was highly commended for the Scottish Children's Book Awards and it was also funded by what's called Creative Scotland. We got a big grant to help us make the book. Um, it was a big grant for us, it was £2,000, which seems like a lot of money even now, you know. Yeah. Um, but at that point, we were looking at also bringing Louis Red Letter Day back into print. So Sandra redrew it, repainted it, and we brought it out as a hardback book. Originally, the first um, Louis Red Letter Day, which had come out in 2000, that pretty much sold out very quickly. So by that point, by 2010, we'd had uh, no copies left, really. Yeah. But I wasn't happy with the artwork anymore, so I didn't really want to just reprint it. And so I spent several months just uh, repainting and redrawing the whole thing before yeah. we brought it out again as a hardback this time. Cool. And then we did a, f a few short comics and a couple of story commissions. We worked on things which helped people to understand money. They could... Um, get into awful debt, get into trouble with with companies that were selling them like a couch, a sofa or a computer or a camera anything and having to pay five times or, or even a hundred times the price of the things so they were getting into debt um, and doing that in a way gave us time to think about where we would go next and that took us to adapting fairy tale comics with paper cuts and working with a publisher having worked with the record label and then going back to working on our own we realised that what we really needed to find was a publisher. And Paper Cuts, when they received a little mini-comic we sent to a lot of people we knew in the industry, they said they'd love to see more work like that. Okay. So that's uh, where it all started. Let me... Have actually, I need to point out just how big of what you guys did about what the record is, how big that really is. I assume <laughs> you've heard this little comic book company called Marvel Comics? <laughs> I think we have, yeah. I think yeah, we have. back in the back in the, and Casablanca Records. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's Kiss, Kiss, and a lot we, of great music, a lot of disco music. Basically, we've got a really, a relatively, at least at the time, a big record producer and a big comic book company were getting together to basically do a crossover comic. That is, they were going to do basically exactly what you guys did. Uh, basically, they were going to do an LP. Yet having a character, and then they were also going to have that character in Marvel Comics. This hmm. character is uh, Alison Blair, aka Dazzler, who's now currently part of the X Men. Okay. Just to show wow. you, just to show yeah. you how big this thing was. However, well, obviously things fell apart, and even though uh, Marvel did get the new character, who was sort of controversial at the time, just because people didn't like her. Um, the record deal, however, fell through. Oof. Yeah. So basically what ended up being was supposed to be a crossover between record and comic book didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Basically, I'm just trying to point out you guys were able to do something that a big company, well, two big companies didn't. Yeah, we're not Marvel, I guess. We're not, we're not Marvel. <laughs> I think sometimes we manage to do things because we're smaller Yeah. and because we're fairly determined. Um once the story was written and Sandra had started working on the artwork, there was still an awful lot of like middle management work, if you like. You had to wear a suit and a tie and maybe a hat and talk on the phone to try and get things done. I think there was a lot of luck involved as well. Um, Fatka, the record label that, that um, brought out the record, um, you'd been listening to their stuff for years and the... Um, you kind of built a relationship with them and they liked what we did weird, yeah. and the bands that were involved um, it was the same with them so I guess it was some kind of lucky thing that happened there was an interesting side to it because when we contacted the musician Hay he was called Hay in Berlin um, he was happy to work with us we made a friendship and we've kept in touch we keep in touch and he's a friend he was working with a group and the group were big fans of our book, Louis Red Letter Day. So when they heard that this song was to be for the Louis book, 
they wanted to make a remix. Now, they were traveling around the world. They were touring all the time, traveling around the world. So that was Moom, the band. There's an Icelandic group called Moom, and they're nice people. And we got a chance to meet them. We also went to Berlin. We traveled to Berlin to meet Hay, and we did that a couple of times. And we've kept a friendship. He even made music to go with the trailer for Louis Knight Salad. So the story made lovely circles. It made a nice circle, I think, didn't it? It was fun. And it was great fun to do it. We're both big music fans. And I think when you're smaller and you've got one or two good points of contact, sometimes it's easier to do something than a big company like DC or Marvel and all the licensing and all of the different things. Casablanca is a huge label. It's a big label in the 70s. eh? A lot of disco music and Kiss as well. It's just sort of interesting. On top of that, not only are you able to accomplish things because you have a lot less tape to worry about, but also there's also the catch that you're basically just trying bigger, bolder things to see what happens. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You're just wanting to reach people. We we realized it would be a great thing to do, a good, fun thing to do. It's something that we'd always wanted to do, and we didn't know how it would come together. So that was interesting. And we couldn't have we couldn't have manufactured a comic book with a record and a comic book with a CD. They made something like ten thousand copies. That's a lot for us. Yeah, Jeez, that'd be a lot even today. I mean, I yeah. don't even hear uh, mostly Kickstarters. I hear are basically one, maybe two, maybe three thousand books. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, but Moon Moon were shifting a hundred thousand units for their albums. It was at the time when the other Icelandic group, Sigur Ross. We're shifting close to a million units, if you call it units. It makes it sound horrible. It makes it sound like a product. But we realized if somebody was willing to work with us and also to work with loads of radio pluggers and people all around the world, you know, like in Hong Kong and Germany. And it was just at the time when music started to go online. Right. And it was also the year that uh, John Peel passed away. And just before he passed away, he talked about our project on his radio show. And I grew up listening to that radio show, so it meant an awful lot to me. It was a very, very uh, uplifting feeling to hear the man talking about something. And he could sense that we'd put a lot of our passion into it. So that was a lovely thing to go. But that was back in 2004. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Basically, a real, I've actually arrived type of moment. Yeah, yeah. Not quite. I don't think you ever feel like that. <laughs> yeah. All right, real quick. What's the origin of, of Metafrog? Especially, I'm curious about the TA. Um, the name itself, you mean? Yeah. I think when we started, we wanted to use uh, just one name for both of us. Um, and we wanted, like, something fun. And we kind of looked for a name for quite a while and nothing came. And just one day, it just popped out of... I was making toast and it just popped out. We liked the idea of phone freaks with a PH. Right. So it's Metafrog with a PH. We also wanted to be more like a group more like a music group, so our name went out there. And we used to think of it as getting out there like a virus, but I think that's a really bad... <laughs> Not now. <laughs> really bad thought. <laughs> really, really bad and inappropriate thought right now. <laughs> so, so yeah, PPE and... Right. When somebody came to fix our boiler, we had to put our swimming goggles on and <laughs> little masks and our hazmat suits, so the guy, the guy almost ran away. <laughs> well, that's good. I just for joke purposes, I actually had tracked down a plague doctor's mask. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's always good to see a plague doctor's mask. <laughs> oh yeah, especially during any kind of viral outbreak. Have you seen Nosferatu, Werner Herzog's film with the plague and the rats, the vampire film? A little bit, yeah. I've really got to sit through the entire thing. So, <laughs> but after but after Metropolis, it's just I'm really scared about anything black, white, German, and long. So <laughs> it can be worth it, though. It oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little about the. I'm going to get to Bluebird. Uh, basically, what's the process like? Because most people usually don't do a duo like you guys are doing. Um, like for example, how you do the scripting? That's you know how do you break down the work? That sort of thing. Okay, so we start. Um, we start with an idea that we kind of um, bounce back to each other. Um, we decide on a direction together, uh, and then we both bring um, our own ideas, making notes and things like that. And then, John, you write the script and dialogue and directions and things. And then I uh, create a layout from this. And at this point, we do lots of different drafts of the layout. 
So there's both our input in it. We both edit it. And then once we're happy with it, I create the final artwork. But it's not like just one step at a time kind of thing. It's all kind of mixed together. That's not really like a... Yeah, it's never the same. It's always different. And that's probably what keeps it quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's going to sound weird, but we we try to keep our egos out of it. Uh, we, we do argue and discuss and look at it. And we always try and do things in service to the story. So it's very different from some comics where you've got a, a writer, a penciler, an inker, a colorist, and a person who does the lettering, and an editor and a publishing house. We are more like artists in a sense than that we're trying to put a concept down as a comic. So sometimes the ideas take a while before they become insistent enough to be worked on. And once they become insistent enough, we want to try and fine-tune them, chisel them, I'll sometimes write loads and it won't get used. Sandra will sometimes write loads or draw loads and it doesn't always get used. For example, we can have pages and pages of layout which don't get used. But it's all part of the process. So it's always different. But mostly I'm writing hoping that Sandra will be uh, both amused and entertained. I'm also thinking, like, um, how is this going to treat something important? How is this going to help people? I think that there's always more to a story than just your initial idea. And to be honest, you don't always know exactly where a story is going to take you. So once we've got a a rough idea of a story, we then, as Sondra says, we both edit it, we both work on it. So it's quite organic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very much a collaboration. (laughs) And it looks like basically you're more of a painter when it comes down to the art than actually drawing it. Yeah, that's true. Actually, um, I so drawing-wise, uh, my my favorite uh, tool, I guess, is the pencil. And then uh, my favorite next favorite thing is to just um, color and paint. Um, so the Louis books at first were done uh, by hand with acrylic inks, and I would ink with technical pens and stuff by hand. Uh, but for the fairy tales, I've switched to uh, digital artwork, and I realized doing this that I don't actually like inking. <laughs> I find it too, um, I don't know, I just find it too... Restrained. Yeah, yeah. I much prefer to put my energies into the the painting side and the the shading side of things. So the artwork has evolved a bit that way. Over time, um, we've worked with slightly different material, always at first with low budget, and Sandra would work by hand. I would write on paper, Sandra would draw it by hand. We then got a 286, an old computer, um, and did a a little bit of word processing scripts. Um, It didn't change the way we worked that much, but it meant that sometimes I'd be writing at the computer. Uh, I do a lot of writing walking, a lot of writing on paper, and we also discuss the ideas. We walk a lot and talk about the ideas till things bubble up, and then we forget about them do other things, travel or, or talk to people like this. And then the ideas resurface. Right. Big chunks of script can be written and then story directions can be decided, but they can also be changed. And then the pacing has to be improved. It's quite a difficult thing to make a comic. It's not that different from making a film. And there aren't that many great films when you think about it. Yeah, and of course, what's really cool about doing the comic is that you're still basically... Do, I mean, you've got to allow for a lot of the stuff you do with the film, but you've also got to allow for the fact that it's an art piece as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah and not you're just, a comic fan. You're, you're a, you know, an honorary geek, if you like, an honorary geek. You're a, a real comic fan. You oh, appreciate I'm, it as an art form. Yeah, I'm not just a geek. I've also got my own web... I've actually have had a web comic out there. That's great. Oh, wow. So... That's great. The less t- said about sex percussions, the better. Um, but it's sort of interesting because what I'm seeing is the reason I really brought up the painting, besides obviously it's something that's different, and don't get me wrong, I love writing. Um, most of this is one of the reasons behind this podcast is because I noticed there was a definite dearth of comic book writing information versus comic book art stuff. Hmm. Um but one of the things that sort of got me curious about the way you do it is you basically, when you do panels, when you do your art, do you do them, you know, as their own, you know, piece of art by themselves, or do you actually work that as a, do that as you're doing it? Uh, no, I definitely work uh, within, within the, I work page by page. 
uh, and uh, sometimes even double page thread by double page thread. I don't isolate the panels uh, within the the pages and work on them just individually. Uh, it's it's all very much of a a piece that's got to be. It's almost like the page is a panel if you if you see what I mean. Right. And um, so that's that's how I I work on the art. That's what Will Eisner used to say. Yeah, the, the page is a panel, but it's also design um, and narrative and clarity. Right. So even though you're telling a story sequentially, when you're writing it, and also Sandra's writing it by putting the penciling down and laying out the sequence of the panels and the arrangement of the panels on the page, that should give you an idea of the story's deeper themes and give you an idea of the flow. If you look at a Jack Kirby page, it's almost like a dance. There's a beauty to the movement on the page. It tells you something without you reading about the story. So there's a power underneath comics, which is the way the words and pictures combine. Without reading and without really following the pictures logically, you still get a great sense of the story from a good comic. Yeah, I like that when, if you like turn a page and just glance at the page and don't read it even, you, if it's well constructed, you'll get a sense of, of the storytelling even without reading it. Um, and that's very much, uh, it's, it's down to the power of the images, obviously. And just for these, just because you guys brought out your literary references, yeah, Scott McCloud's really big on the panels and the words and pictures should all combine into one really nice message and help back up the theme as well. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's, I'm just looking at some of the pages from Louis and it's got some really nice graphics to it. And what I really like was the painting because it looks almost like you're doing an actual drawing versus. Uh, what I see with a lot of people who do straight painting, especially when they do watercolors and oils. Acryl- I know acrylic is its own field, but it's just it's just nice to see a different media used. Yeah, but actually the first Louis book was done with uh, watercolors. I switched to acrylic inks, um, in, in fact, in 2004 when we did mm-hmm. Louis Dreams Never Die. So, yeah, but I, I came from a background of uh, drawing and painting rather than making comics. That's what that's what I originally did before we started making comics together. Yeah. So I guess that's why uh, I approached the artwork that way. All the all the Louis books were made by hand. Even the lettering initially was all done by hand. For the first three books, it was done by hand. I think with Dreams Dreams Never Die, we used a font. We created a we created a font, and that took almost longer because you have to address all the kerning spaces between the different yeah. pairs of letters. It takes a lot of rethinking. It's a headache. It's a wee bit of a headache. Yeah. <laughs> but once it's done, it's good. <laughs> yeah. And people for, think. Sorry. No, go ahead. People think the Louis books have been made on computer, and contrarily, they think the fairy tale adaptations have been done by hand. But in actual fact, the Louis books were all handmade, hand painted. Just Sandra spent hours and hours applying like seven layers of paint, so there was no brush strokes seen. Right. So the pages look amazing. Yeah, they definitely look great. I mean, if it's definitely one of the better uh, hasting a children's book, but it's just, yeah, it looks awesome. They were designed to frighten and amuse children of all shapes and sizes, so they're quite dark, they're really quite <laughs> scary books. People assume they're children's books because we were playing with that format with a little square book, but once they read it, they, they get scared, <laughs> they're upset. Yeah. A lot of children's stories are pretty much the same way, so... Yeah. But then again, I sort of look at some how the really bizarre concept of what a child story is. So go figure. But I'm a child of the 1980s. We had never-ending stories. So mm. <laughs> you still had where the wild things are, didn't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Just pointing out, we our big, big, huge child's movie had a big scary wolf in it that had absolutely no problem killing things on screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. And less said about uh, Dark Crystal, the better. But <laughs> I would love to see that. I'd love to see a parent who some of the parents go, but I only like they don't watch a children's movie. Cool. Dark Crystal. Enjoy. <laughs> and then run. But um, as far as the writing goes, how many aha moments have you had? I mean, times where you basically have had to stop a conversation just to basically go, excuse me, I've got to make notes on this real quick type of thing. Um. Quite often, and mostly when you're alone, luckily. Sometimes when you're like in the bank, or or we used to be able to do things like that, but right now it's different. Usually in the shower, or just when you're trying to fall asleep, 
also sometimes just by working by working on the stuff ideas pop up often when you're trying to sleep at night you suddenly wake up <laughs> and it's there and it just won't won't leave, won't go away won't leave you alone but that's okay I think eh? that's part of the process part of the process part of being creative I think um, we don't have to go to work in an office 95 at the moment so we've got a very different type of life but I think if you if you're enjoying what you do, that's the ideal world. You know, it's in, it's important that you like what you're doing. Are you guys taking advantage of the uh, time off, so to speak? Um, do you know we were very lucky when the lockdown started? We were in the middle of a commission. Um, we've been very unlucky in that some of the things we were planning to do, like travel to TCAF for the launch of Bluebeards. That didn't happen, and the residency that we had won, because you had to tender for it, and it was competitive, and we were very lucky to, to win it, and it would have been a bit more security for us. That's not going to happen the way it would have, but it may still happen virtually. So we had a commission, so we have to still work on that, um, and some of it's got to be done alternatively, like a more educational and online approach, rather than visiting people or doing talks. So some things have changed. But yeah, first we, we worked a wee bit later, slept a little bit later. And you know what? It feels like the 70s here with less horror and less death. It feels a lot calmer. There's less cars. Maybe it's starting to be busier again now, but we did enjoy the piece and we started to work on a new story. We started to have ideas and it's like plants growing. You know, you get little spurts occasionally, growth spurts or... Uh, moments where you realise you've made more progress than you thought. Right. We've also been watching a lot of good films. We're we're both different ages, um, different cultures. I'm Scottish and I grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Confession but time, we've been watching a lot of Kung Fu episodes. We've <laughs> been watching Kung Fu. Yeah. Remember Kung Fu, the TV David show? Car David Carradine? Yeah, that's I right. have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Go and Google it. <laughs> okay. As he shows the three-piece staff that that Kwai King Ching used quite a few times in the show. Actually, just that, it's just that one show where he used the three-piece rod that I'm like, dude, that is such an awesome weapon. Haven't figured out how to use it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I guess we might as well talk about this new uh, Bluebeards. Yep. Is yep. that anything to do? I I'm gonna play complete idiot here. Um, I'm assuming it's not going to do much with the uh, pirate. Well, a lot of people ask that. Bluebeards isn't Blackbeard. He's not a pirate. Bluebeards an old folk tale. It's a story about a man who's got a blue beard, which makes him unattractive, perhaps even repulsive to women. But what's more frightening is his name is shrouded in mystery. Although he's wealthy in most versions of the story, he's very well off. He's also been married, and perhaps even married several times. And what's very frightening is his wife seems to have disappeared. So it's quite an exciting story. And our book, Bluebeard, is really turned upside down because it's Bluebeard, a feminist fairy tale. And it's really about Eve. And Eve's a young girl who has her own hopes, her own dreams. So it's more her story. So we follow Eve and her family and her sweetheart, Tom. And when Eve's 18, she's forced to marry this character, Bluebeard. And that's when the story really gets exciting because she's finding herself suddenly locked inside a castle. Not only that, but there's a key, a key she's not allowed to use. And then there's a locked room and a hidden secret. And it's quite dark. That's where it gets quite scary. Yeah, it's quite a scary story. Like all good fairy tales or folk tales, the power of it is in its frightening nature, its scariness, and it carries a message. I think the original message was quite offensive, though. Yeah, the original message of... Uh, so it was a fairy tale written by Charles Perrault in the 17th century, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. Um, and his original message to this fairy tale was that uh, women should never be curious and never try to find out what they're not meant to know. And if they do try to find out, they'll be severely punished. Uh, so that was pretty misogynist. But I think that was uh, the times. That's just the way people thought at the time. 
but obviously that's a no-no for 2020. So we had to really rethink of how we were going to approach this story um, for um, from our own point of view and for a, a modern audience. And that was enjoyable. I think stories like that they've often been retooled or reappropriated to often religious ends or patriarchal ends. It was interesting to look at the history of the story. When you've got folk tales, they're often oral tradition stories, so they've never been written down. And when they are retold, word of mouth, or written down, they change. They're exaggerated, they're made darker, they're they're reconfigured. Uh, Our retelling of it, we wanted to be both powerful, but also a little bit more coherent. So we built a fictive world over time and worked into the ideas about the modern world. We had a wee look at the way things were and thought we were in a bit of a mess. This was before the pandemic. We just really thought things could be a lot better if there was more kindness, more love. I think using a story as a starting point can be quite exciting. These are stories that we grew up reading and they set your hairs on end on your arms. They gave you horripilation, so they're very powerful stories. And as usual, the more powerful the, the more powerful the story, the more powerful it is over, and resonates over throughout the ages. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and of course, uh, black fairy tales do lend themselves to mis- uh, reinterpretation relatively easily. Yes, that's and, right. And, yeah. and in fact, they, that, that's how they they began. They were um, they were told orally by people. They weren't written down. So everyone had their own version every country had their own version of the same tale there was different twists mm-hmm. on the same story so they've been really evolving ever since they they came to life it's also got a little bird you'll be pleased to hear yeah. <laughs> it's got a little bird that's quite central to the story of we white birds our version has a bird not the original version well some of the original versions apparently had a bird although i've yet to find one that actually has a bird but i've read that some of the early versions of it had a bird there's loads of different versions of folk tales and fairy tales, like yeah. thousands, thousands. And of course, the birds would be different symbolism seeing them on the uh, fairy tale. Some of them may be symbols of freedom. Some of them yeah. may basically be ways to actually show the oppression just a little bit more. You know, cage right. birds yeah. and all that. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the symbolism would have been religious, so the bird might have represented the soul. Or you're absolutely right. And we couldn't have read them the way the other people of the time read these stories. We couldn't have read them. We couldn't have read them the same way. Because you bring your own mirror and your own lamp to a story. Depends on your background and what stories you've read, what's in your inner world. I think two people reading Goldilocks and the Three Bears are definitely going to give you two different readings. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, right. Yeah. That's right. I think I've heard, I obviously tend to go with, sometimes you're just looking for that thing that's just right, but I've also mm-hmm. seen people that basically read a little bit deeper, darker, and get a little bit more oppressive into that as well. Yes, so. yeah. very much, very much. Yeah. So when you guys basically started preaching Bluebird, what, how did you basically change it to make for your own ends? So first of all, we... Um, we added an entire uh, an entire bit to the story. Uh, the original fairy tale is just about Bluebeard and uh, the point where he 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 chooses uh, a young woman to to marry. Uh, but we actually decided to tell the story from the heroine's point of view, and we gave her a name, Eve. Uh, we chose that name because it's a kind of reference to Adam and Eve kind of thing. Um, and we wanted to basically make the story about her. And it sort of grew into her story from childhood and um, her background and what she was hoping and dreaming and uh, where she grew up and the forces that uh, were at work, uh, mainly with the patriarchy, where everyone decided for her what she was going to do, but herself and mostly it was the father. Um, so that's kind of how we how we uh, changed the story, the story in that way. We then had an adventure because we wanted to create something that elicited sympathy and empathy from a good reader. Um, but it had to be fairly subtle because we didn't want to be too didactic. We didn't want to wag fingers and say, oh, patriarchy is wrong and uh, the society is worthless. And we wanted to make a, a fun read, something that kids could enjoy. So it's designed to be very readable. But it also talks about the mess the climate's in. It also talks about the importance of not being covetous or grabbing money because it won't make you happy. It talks about the importance of love. I think like um, 
even though it's not usually said when it comes to the high point of the story it's the most important thing love's the most important thing so it's the main theme of the book but it's just it's a fun read um, and it's, it's a weird thing for us to say that but when you look at it you've tried to build something we set out to try and make it a slightly different story that was more believable more enjoyable and more modern and also spoke to us we weren't really sure if we could do that I right. also wanted to change the ending of the story, so I'm not going to be uh, telling you we won't the do ending, a, obviously. We won't no do spoilers. a spoiler, but... But we wanted to basically give the the heroine more agency rather than just be um, an object in the story that other people kind of had control over. We also realized that the story is magical. There's, there's a lot of magic in the story. That's a fun thing to write because you've got no limits. So there's a dark forest, and that could be the forest of our mind or the forest of our depression, or it could be any other symbolism that you interpret from it. But it's a universal thing, and um, there's loads of universal, but there's also quite personal, and also quite sort of, um, I think, likable. I hope the characters are quite likable. They certainly, Sandra's art really brings the characters alive. You saw that with the Louis pages, even yeah. though Louis is like um, quite a simply drawn figure, brings a lot of character and sympathy. Sympathy, um, and it's the same with the Bluebeard characters. I think the reader follows them. I certainly found that when I was reading. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting cover. I'll give you guys that. Yeah. So I mean, basically, you've got the you know the Bluebeard is basically most of the cover and you bit in the center of it you apparently got Eve there that's right and he's a lot more feminine he's a lot more handsome and softer looking than a scary scary guy with a blue beard might be right yeah we didn't want to make him the original has him like like an ugly person that no one wants to go near but we thought it would be more interesting if he was like a charming a charming persona that people are drawn to I'm going with the obvious analogy. You guys decided to make him more like Captain Jack Sparrow, didn't you? Yes, I guess that's, uh, <laughs> I guess that's an idea. Uh, Certainly our nephews would think that. Certainly our wee nephews would think that. That was their favourite film, I think, for a long time. <laughs> so, I mean, basically I'm looking at it basically with all the... When you generally tend to think pirate movies, you tend to think more like the Errol Flynn... You know, the Scarlet Pirate, big buff, well, not necessarily buff, but, you know, masculine, as yeah. opposed yeah. to Sparrow, who's not. <laughs> yeah. I think that's more modern. I think that's a lot more modern. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I was thinking about Johnny Depp when I designed the character. You? <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, you didn't know that, did you? I don't know. <laughs> You definitely think, have the cheekbones um, for it. Well, I think I think uh, pirates are mysterious, you know. And Bluebeard, although he's not a pirate, he's certainly a mysterious figure. He's certainly a figure of myth. I think fairy tales—they are myths, they are stories—and that's quite a powerful thing already. Yeah, pirates are a weird bunch. They're they're right on the crux of everybody wants to be one because of the rebellion factor. But at the same time, this all the murder and all the not so nice stuff <laughs> he did. So, hmm, <laughs> murder, rebellion. <laughs> yeah, murder is bad. <laughs> so, but you, we have a lot of characters who are like that. But again, American. I'm you, you know Billy the Kid is our best example. So you know the guy who killed like 21 people. One guy just for snoring too loud, and you know. The Wild West is amazing. We've been um, fascinated by it. We grew up in the Wild West. Even though we grew up in France and Scotland in different decades, we still grew up with Sergio Leone, the Neil Morricone, the, the the great literature of the Wild West. There's great books. I don't know if you've read Jack Black, You Can't Win. That's great, right? That's right on the very edge of the Wild West. It's just after the kind of Wild West and just before the more modern America. That's an amazing read. It's oh, a fascinating yeah. time. And I think like the moral ambiguity of somebody who would be a gun man or a gun woman, you know, 
Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. There's Nicholas Ray films. I don't know if you've seen They Live by Night, but that's a wonderful film about a Bonnie and Clyde couple. It's a tragic film. It's a noir, but its chemistry on screen is incredible. So it takes a very simple story, but it turns it into something very high octane. It's yeah. incredibly good film. Jeez, talk about another fun couple that turned into a heroic. The reason Bonnie and Clyde were seen heroic at the time was because when they go into the bank robberies and all that, yeah, they were a little on the, shall we say, violent side, but they were also... You have to understand that part of the economic problem at the time was basically people didn't like owing money. And so the banks obviously would be keeping track of all their papers, and what Bonnie and Clyde would do is they'd go into the banks, burn all the loan papers, steal all the money, and accidentally kill uh, a couple people (laughs) on the way out. Honestly, they fell on my yeah, dagger type of as a back to They were more like Robin Hood. They were more like Robin Hood. That's right. Well, that's how they were seen anyway by the common people and, of course, by the bankers and cops. Well, not so much. Not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, sorry, I'm just sort of amused. As much as you guys, first off, i got to point out it's sort of interesting you compare when you start looking at Wild West. Uh, seeing how some of that symbology gets in there when you compare, say, uh, Kira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai versus um, this is the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and what's really funny is the Magnificent Seven have taken on a life of their own over the years. Yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah, yeah. But you can't get many better actors, Yul Brynner, Steve McQueen. These are films. I watched it with my dad when I was a wee kid. I must have seen it about 50 times. I don't know how many times you've seen it, but I've probably seen it most years when I was a kid. Yeah. So plus minus neurodetic. So I I can't really watch most movies like more than two or three times, but I also can relive those memories pretty much any time I want to. Yeah. So. Yeah. Have you seen a Fistful of Dynamite? Have you seen a Fistful of Dynamite? It's a Sergio Leone film. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have a book. That's a brilliant film. <laughs> What's there, your favorite film, James? Uh, as far as uh, films, period, I'm more of a Last Starfighter person. Um, yeah, it's just a really cool movie. It's just you have that really mix of, you know, hero finds himself, becoming the hero, doesn't, you know, the whole reluctant hero, then all of a sudden he's the only one remaining, so he has to save the Galactic Empire type of deal. And yeah, it's a lot more deeper than I'm making it out to be. You have to understand. It's a be- lot of responsibility. <laughs> oh yeah. Responsibility. Uh, ironically, one of my favorite movies of all time is Battle Beyond the Stars, which is again going back to that whole Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven thing, it, but this time it's in space, so it's yeah. totally different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and do you like Alien? Of course. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> sorry, I've. You have to understand, I watch a lot of B-movies, so, or B-movie reviews of the late. And so it's been uh, a movie you need to see if you've seen Alien. It is a movie called uh, Galaxy of Terror. Planet of the Vampires as well. I haven't seen Galaxy of Terror. You understand why I'm bringing we'll up Galaxy to, of Terror? We'll have to look that I'll up. Watch that, <laughs> you ever we'll watch Alien? You know, you know who Cameron is, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, originally he was one of the production assistants with under Roger Corman. Basically, yeah. the B movie king, and yeah. he just they, Roger Corman just simply said, "Hey, have fun. This is what we need. Do what you need to do to get it done." And yeah. you can actually see, and you see a lot of stuff you see in Alien and a lot of his later movies. You see in Galaxy of Terror. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. And Planet of the Vampires got that lovely lo-fi, low-tech space, the kind of gritty, dirty space that you see in Alien. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant wee film as well. Well, speaking of B-movie, it's um, it's Peter Cushing's birthday today. Uh, so. <laughs> mm, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee's birthdays tomorrow. Oh, this is going to be a fun week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of people who are love the Hammer films. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's my childhood. And we won't talk about the abominable Dr. Fibes. That's oh, superb. <laughs> Have you heard um, Basil Kirchin's other music? Have you heard some of his other soundtrack work? And Basil Kirchin? Check I, him out. Okay. All right. So, any final thoughts? Yes, any that final time, thoughts? It's, yes, it's um, that time of the interview. 
that time. <laughs> well, just remember to be kind and loving. That's our final thought. We'd also like to say hello to everybody who would have come to see us at TCAF. Well, we're really, really missing uh, coming over to the States this year. We had plans to come to TCAF and then to go to SBX in September. So we're really, really sad that that's not going to happen. But hopefully the, the year after that, uh, virus permitting <laughs> or yeah. non-virus permitting. <laughs> I think we miss popping in to say hello to the good people at Paper Cuts in New York because we would have found a way to do that. It's always easier to go via New York, to go to Toronto or to go to any of the shows in America. But I think um, at the moment the most important thing is to be well and to stay safe, to try and stay fit and not get too stir-crazy, you know. You don't want to be writing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy and, you know. I've seen the movie. Um. <laughs> Shining, gotta love it. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Here's Johnny. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the obligatory. And what all would you like to plug today? Well, we've got a new graphic novel, and because of the virus, it's in boxes, in warehouses, and nearly in shops. Shops are slowly reopening as people really, really realize that reading is essential, books are essential. And even if they're not utterly essential, they're important. And I think as the shops gradually reopen, people are starting to look at our book, and that's exciting. So even though it was officially released on the 5th of May, it's really coming out all the time for a wee while, just as things start to resurface, because the world, time has changed. Money has changed, time has changed. It's going to be a bit like Bonnie and Clyde, where a lot of people are in a lot of debt, and a lot of people need to be helped, and we need to be there for each other, I think. That's, that's the main thing. We hope that people will enjoy our graphic novel. Okay. Let's see a big thing. James, thanks very much for your time. Thanks. It's lovely to speak to you. Sorry we woke you up or kept you up. For those interested in helping support the show, please check us out over at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. We offer different types of tips, tricks, and all that for surviving this writer's life, as well as unedited versions of certain interviews. Yeah, they were either ran too long or they needed to be, shall we say, bleeped out. Those are available in their unaltered form at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. Also, I'm currently working on trying to get transcripts up so there are occasional transcripts of shows. You expect to see more of those over the coming months. And of course, if you want to see a much more curated version of this podcast, head over to YouTube. Yes, Webcomics Reviews and Interviews has its very own special YouTube channel where we actually break this down into various different playlists regarding different topics as well as separating out the reviews as well as the interviews. Straight up, and we also add in the Alexa Flash Briefs as well as some of the mini-casts that you'll be finding on the Patreon.com account. So definitely check that out. Last but not least, I do have a couple of books available on Amazon.com under Jameis Jokum. J-A-M-A-I-S-J-O-C-H-I-M. Obviously, the character building book is up, and I've also got the How to Create a Comic Workbook up as well. Both of those are really great if you're trying to basically just figure out how to write a comic. Again, thanks, and have a great evening.